I'd like to request your a kind attention um, for a few thoughts on practice. I was going to give you a lofty discourse on the nature of the citta, the, uh, the heart of our experience, but uh, something in a group this morning prompted me to narrow this down a little bit to uh, one aspect of the citta, um, an aspect I secretly take myself to be an expert in. Uh, the aspect is called ignorance, and uh, more specifically, the hindrances as an aspect of this uh, ignorance. So as, as many of you will know, since you're all experienced practitioners, um, Buddhism across traditions, Buddhist teachings uh, insist that uh, there is a fundamental connection between suffering, dukkha, and confusion. Yeah. So, dukkha is an interesting term. It predates Buddhist use of this term. And um, the oldest form of this term actually uh, refers to space. Uh, du, dus means dirty or unfortunate, narrow, grubby, and ka means space. And the oldest usage that I think uh, has been traced refers to the space of an axle hole. Yeah? So, uh, an axle hole, yeah, that's where the wheel and the axle fit together. And uh, if you're a Buddhist, obviously this makes you think of things going round and round. It's narrow and dirty and it doesn't end. It keeps rolling. So this makes a lot of sense. The Aryan invaders of the Indian subcontinent that somewhere in the third millennium overrun the indigenous traditions there uh, were guys with horses and with carts. They had some military advantage with uh, war chariots. So these guys knew something about axle holes. If you had a good axle hole, it meant you had a smooth ride. If you had a bad axle hole, it meant you had a, a bumpy ride. So if you're suffering, if you experience a dukkha, then it means you have a bumpy ride. Yeah. So that's the oldest traceable uh, use of the term dukkha. So basically you're in either a good hole or you're in a bad hole. So sukha, the e, the, the u is short, as often sukha is. Sukha is the short piece and dukkha is the more longish piece. So the suffering here in this phrase where Buddhist traditions insist has something to do with confusion is uh, that suffering that comes when we have a bumpy ride. So, confusion comes in two brands in early Buddhist teaching. One of them is called avidja, not knowing or nescience, and the other one is called moha, delusion. Sometimes both are used interchangeably, but if you look at the, over the various texts, then you can discern that avidja, the not knowing, that sounds really harmless in English, isn't it? Just one almost is ready to give extenuating circumstances. I didn't know. Yeah. 
But this doesn't apply. Buddhists are really strict about not knowing. They think this is not deserving of extenuating circumstances. Contrary, you're, you're worse off when you're in not knowing. So the not knowing mainly refers to the causal connection of conditions. In other words, the conditionality principle that underpins the experience of samsara. So this is generally associated more with the term avidya. Uh, the term moha, delusion, is generally more associated with uh, forms of how we are psychologically affected by not knowing, which parts of us are particularly affected. So there's long lists of bits and pieces of our system that are affected by forms of delusion on the level of perception, on the level of emotion, on the level of thinking, on the level of uh, interpreting. This would be a lovely talk for another night. Tonight we would like to look at some of the forms of ignorance. Ignorance sounds so harmless in my ears and um, I think we underestimate the power of ignorance and I think you underestimate the implications of that. It sounds like basically, well, there's just a little piece I don't know. And I only need to get this little piece and then things will change around magically. But let's look at dimensions of this ignorance. So one simple dimension and maybe... If you want to stratify ignorance on its lowest level, then ignorance comes across as a lack of sensitivity. Yeah. One dimension of ignorance is the simple and plain lack of sensitivity. It comes across as a form of numbness, comes across as a form of thick-skinnedness. It comes across of me not picking up, not being attuned enough. That's a very powerful form of ignorance. You know, people who are just not picking up, people who are not uh, attuned, people who are not sensitive uh, can wreak quite a bit of havoc and can make life of other people very, very difficult. Yeah. It also hampers learning. That type of ignorance also really, really hampers learning. Yeah. If we are simply not picking up, if we are not sensitizing ourselves, if we're not attuning ourselves, it's very difficult to learn. We need our sensitivity as a, as a prime tool to be able to learn, to pick up what's happening. Um, ignorance on that level needs more vitality. It needs the training in sensitivity. It needs training in the use of our senses. Uh, there is obviously a lot to be said for training in attention, training in fluidity of attention, training in specificity of attention. Um, much of this can be learned via the body. Yeah. So much of what we do in our Satipatthana teachings during the course of the day actually addresses this dimension of ignorance. We're learning to become more refined. If you heard Chris today speaking about becoming attuned to the sensations within the sensations. There's a very simple principle in all this Buddhist mind training. It's so simple we dare almost not say it. You know, basically, the mind begins to resemble the things it picks up and keeps taking on as an object. This is very canonical Buddhism. You can read this in Majima 19 where it says, you know, the heart becomes 
more and more like the things it ponders and takes up time and again. Um, that's, that principle is very crucial. So where we place our attention, the quality, whatever the object that we place our attention on has, this quality begins gradually to color the receptacle of the mind. It begins gradually to color the very mind that is paying attention. So we be, the mind begins to echo the qualities of what it is engaged with. If it is engaged with something exciting, something loud, something jagged, something sudden, something intense, the mind will become more rough. It will become more wild. It will become, um, become more agitated or excited or irritated, depending on what precisely the, the nature of that excitement is. If the mind is or more, or more precisely, the attention of the mind is consistently placed on something subtle, something rhythmical, something that is dynamic, and something that is f refined, then the mind will attune to that refinement quite automatically. Yeah. If you have something dynamic like the breath, you generally most people feel the in-breath is more strongly felt than the end of the out-breath. So if this, the intensity of your mind object in this case, the sensations of breathing somewhere in your body, if that sensation decreases because it tapers off, then your attentional faculty has to slightly make a bigger effort to keep up with the receding intensity. Yeah? And that compensatory effort of attention is what strengthens the attentional fluidity or continuity. So it's that little effort that keeps training the mindfulness muscle. Yeah? So that principle we exercise if we do body awareness, posture, breathing, orientation in space, scanning through various parts of the body. So we're countering the ignorance of that first layer. A second layer of ignorance has to do with the fact that we actually know more than we admit we know. So it's the Ignorance that basically refuses to acknowledge how much we actually already know. It's the ignorance that prefers not to know. Well, psychologists have a number of really nasty words for this. They call the thing like displacement and denial and refusal and things like that. So you can unfortunately do all these things without knowing any of these words. It's the, it, it works almost more beautifully if you don't know these words. Yeah? So just be f because you, you may find that you actually you have nothing to do with these words, it doesn't mean that you're uh, having nothing to do with the actual practice of what these words name. So um, We do a lot of this. Generally, we're smarter than we pretend to be because mm, being smart means we have to act. You know, it's all this, every act of learning comes at the cost of being called into deeper responsibility. We don't get insights, we don't get understanding without being at the same time called more deeply into relationship, and that means more deeply into responsibility. There's something, deep down we know, there's something irreversible about knowing, not just with stream entry and with awakening, but long before, you know, when you learn something, you can no longer pretend to be innocent, you can no longer lie your way back into innocence. Yeah, okay. So learning, we all know, comes at a cost. 
Once we know something, we can no longer pretend we were ignorant about it and we need to act. Yeah? We need to do things or we need to take the repercussions of not doing and not acting upon our better knowledge. Yeah. So one way the mind tries to get out of this responsibility is by simply pretending it's not happening. It doesn't add up. Yeah? My sugar consumption and my tooth and my dental bills have nothing to do with each other. These are totally separate things. One is sweet and the other one is sour. Yeah? So we pretend there is no conditionality taking place. Yeah? Because there is a little bit of a gap in between. Um, I pretend that these are totally separate things. I am happily with either of them in the nowness of the moment. And I refuse to acknowledge that they have a conditional connection. So uh, the task on, on, on that second form of not knowing is basically we have to find out how to uproot denial, what makes us safe enough to admit what we already know and to begin to live from what we already know, to ask ourselves what, what does it ask, what is asked of me if I have to live from the knowing I have already acquired about my heart, about what I know of others, about what I know of how my relationship with the world unfolds. What do I owe this understanding that I already have? This is a difficult thing. It's easy if you're a kid. Uh, as you grow older, this seems to become more difficult to do justice to what we know, to make sure that the inner human being and the outer human being the sensitive knowing part and uh, the part, the behavioral acting part, still are congruent. Yeah. And sometimes it's painful to create that congruence after we've operated on a number, on a pattern that somehow became estranged from how we feel. Yeah. We need to reauthenticate, and that means we may need to change our lives. We may need to disappoint people. We may need to to leave places that initially we have aspired to find. And now somehow they have become no longer places where we can be with our full heart. So this, this is a big task. Again, mindfulness has a huge role to play in this. The refinement of sati, the duration of sati, establishing the capacity to sustain mindfulness, the capacity to establish a spatial, stabilized mindfulness that is capable of deeply understanding what takes place in the mind. That mind, by the way, I, I think of this in the Pali term citta, and I don't want to drag you into Abhidharmic notions of the, the citta, but th that mind has basically three functions. Uh, one function is basic sensitivity. Yeah? It's the picking up of things. It's that which the first level of ignorance Effects. So that basic sensitivity is one of the functions of mind. As a second big function, it responds to the sensory impressions it receives. So the secondary level, it, it produces what Buddhist psychology calls sankhara. It acts. So it generates mentality, it generates perceptions, it generates uh, will formations. It, it makes us feel in certain way and it makes us respond to those feelings. So sense impressions, evaluation of these sense impressions, emotions coming out of these sense impressions, and then 
movements of intention coming out of these sense impressions. That's the second big task of the citta. It responds. It responds through speech, it responds through inner uh, mental steps of decision and um, intention. It responds through behavioral patterns. Yeah? By let, it lets us act. So that second layer of citta is very much concerned how we process what we have perceived through the sensory channels and how we respond to this initial input into the world. You know, this is how we create our lives, create relationship, create our connections to the, to the world of things and people. The third function of the mind is basically simply to understand. The third function of the citta is to know. It's knowing capacity. Now, it so happens, the more it is preoccupied with uh, negotiating sensory impingements, the more it is preoccupied with reacting to these sensory impingements, the less resources it seems to have for its knowing capacity. That's one of the reasons why we try to modulate, make life really boring on meditation retreats, because we want to lower the impingement on level one, we encourage you to get the perspective on what's happening on level two so that the knowing dimension of the citta can really uh, come into its fullness, can, can really brought, uh, get some traction on the processes that this knowing becomes aware of. So ignorance obviously affects all of these things. So we were at... Uh, we're coming to the third dimension of ignorance. That is an easy one. The third dimension of ignorance is the sheer lack of information. Yeah? There's just pieces we simply don't know. And if we know these pieces, then we are capable of being more skillful in the world. I'll say. I've lived a number of years in Thailand, and it's remarkable that in Thailand, where you people have a lot of suffered from that, uh, there are still quite a few myths around what causes malaria. Yeah, so malaria is caused by a parasite that is transmitted by the female of a particular uh, mosquito called Anopheles. And uh, for malaria, you need basically this mosquito, you need to be in range of this mosquito, and you need to have somebody who is already affected with, that, with malaria because uh, the mosquito doesn't fly all too far and it doesn't live all too long. So you need to be in the proximity of infected people to get an infection. That's fairly well known. Uh, there are some very fine malaria uh, doctors in Thailand. And um, sadly, malaria is less and less of a problem in Thailand, not because it has been counteracted or people know how to protect themselves, but the, the mosquito needs the forest. And uh, since Thailand doesn't look very well after its forest, so also the mosquito seems to be uh, endangered you know, because they've chopped down most of the forest in which that mosquito could survive. But there are many people in Thailand still believing that mosquito, basically malaria has nothing to do with mosquitoes, it has to do with bad water. So I was told straight-faced that you know, we shouldn't drink bad water, which is certainly a good suggestion. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the idea that you could protect yourself against malaria by not drinking this kind of water uh, is obviously uh, a plain error. Yeah. If you know what causes that parasite uh, to be transmitted, then water is pretty innocent in this. So that piece of information makes all the difference. 
It makes a difference in infection rate, it makes a difference in treatment, it makes a difference in prevention. You know, that little piece of information actually is very useful. So the third level of ignorance refers to lack of detail, lack of data, lack of information. There's so many things that can be really helped by, um, by knowing what precisely, uh, say, causes something useful or something uh, deleterious. It was not so long ago that people in Europe, uh, and maybe over here, believed that tuberculosis was caused by bad night air. And, uh, you know, there's, there's loads of sanatoriums in the, in, in the Western Alps for, for the cure of, sana, of people with tuberculosis because and they, were, you know, they were only let out in sunlight. And as soon as dawn moved in, basically these, these guys were moved back off their wheelchairs and out of their sun, deck, sun chairs back inside so that they didn't catch any bad night here. I'm sure it has helped going up to the mountains when you're affected with tuberculosis, and I'm sure some of that has had its value, but uh, tuberculosis is not caused by bad night air. We know that now, and tuberculosis is, is less of a problem, at least in those latitudes. It's, apparently, it seems to be coming back for some other reasons, but um, the detail makes all the difference. So, on this level, ignorance has to do with, can be counteracted by learning, by inquiry, and by uh, basically training things like comprehension. Yeah. Comprehension is something uh, that allows us to discern, to grasp cognitively, to, to conceive and to understand the specificity of a phenomenon. That's a useful skill. Contrary to some popular understanding, Buddhism isn't just about letting go. The Buddha actually was quite fond, not just of deep intuitive wisdom, but even of plain knowledge. You know. So, the third type of ignorance is maybe the one that is easily counteracted if we make the effort to learn, to find out, to inquire. Often enough, we don't inquire because we're somehow afraid or it seems uncomfortable or we believe that we will never figure it out. Often enough, what stops us from learning is not our incapacity to learn, but it's an image of ourselves that says, I am not capable of doing this. It's either too painful, or I'm too stupid, or I don't deserve it, or um, it's so difficult that already the thought of it makes me break out in sweat. Yeah? It's one of the most beautiful things to see when people really start believing that they can understand. As a teacher, this is one of the most endearing and most beautiful things. When, when I see people connecting the dots, their own dots, not what I told them, but connecting their own dots. When they when they understand things that none of us have told them, you know, when they begin to apply what they pick up and, and make it yours, you know, make it their own, make it, and come to conclusions, none of the people who have tried addressing this or teaching them could have come to, you know, when they have come to their own power in learning, in being able to understand. And, savoring that their minds are capable of understanding. 
The Buddha, in many ways, was you know was the prime example. He was he's the great educator of the of the of the miracles he has performed. He felt that the miracle of instruction is the biggest miracle. Yeah, he was a very very early revolutionary when it comes to education. He was quite adamant that people should learn and could learn. And the most empowering thing to give somebody is. The, the trust and the tools to be able to learn on their own. Yeah. That's why early Buddhism is so full of encouragement to investigate, examine, research, dig in, fathom. You know, there's so much encouragement to this. The next piece of not knowing has to do not with information, but with a meaningful way to organize information that we already have. And I suspect that's a problem you will be most familiar with. Uh, we all drown in information, isn't it? We have, we need strategies. I need strategies. I would be surprised if you didn't need strategies to filter relevant, germane information from that stuff, which is just not important for my life or doesn't have any bearing on my reality. And it's one thing to have a pile of information a pile of ideas, and it's another thing to actually have a body of organic, usable, applicable knowledge. Yeah, this is something very, very different. The pile of information is just growing bigger. If you get another piece of information, you just throw it on the pile, and the pile just gets a little higher. Yeah? A body of organized knowledge is something that when you change one piece, or when you add one piece, the whole thing begins to change. Yeah? It may have impact on all the other pieces. This is a very, very different type of understanding. We all have a huge pile of information. My pile of information is, um, I have a perverse mind which basically um, remembers useless arcane details, grotesquely long, uh, even though there are no ap there's no applicability of this. And unfortunately, some pieces which would be useful and would be direly needed uh, are falling out. Yeah? So it's, I don't know where, what kind of vipaka that is. I, I, have to, um, I have to find that out at some point. But not all of the things we know is really terribly useful. And to arrive from a pile of information at a body of coherent, correlated, applicable knowledge is a skill. And the fourth type of ignorance is about the lack of this skill. How can we come from plainly comprehending things to what Western philosophy would call reason? Yeah? Namely, the capacity to actually contextualize and understand a phenomena and to um, a, a phenomena or an event in the larger picture. Yeah. I would expect your dog to have some comprehension. It probably figures out when you're playing with him or when you're stern with the dog. Uh, I would expect your dog not to have any reason. Yeah. So if you're looking for a distinction between these two... Um, so comprehension means an immediate, quick grasp, a way to comprehend the capacity to discern, yeah, with rapidity and, uh, and and see see something, pick a detail out. Reason means you actually 
realize the implications of that detail. You can bring it into a larger picture, contextualize, and you know where that de what that detail means. That's a very different type of function. The latter needs another, uh, another skill in the mind, and that skill is uh, maybe what our science does at best. You know, it, it helps us to 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 organize, starting from a simple information and arrives at a reasonably useful, coherent and organized understanding of, of what to do with that information. There is a distinction in, in Buddhist uh, understanding of wisdom, panya. So you have sutta, maya, panya, this is the wisdom that is, or the knowledge that is arrived from listening. That would be the learning in our day. In the day of the Buddha, the only way you could arrive such learning was by listening to somebody. Nowadays we have differing ways. We can read, we can download, we can, uh, you know, you can do an online seminar on something. There's many sources for that type of learning. The second type of wisdom is still is exactly the, the contrary of this fourth kind of ignorance. It's the, at best, it's an organized, organic type of knowledge that allows you to grasp a certain context, to grasp a phenomenon, to grasp um, an issue. So the Buddha called this Chintamaya Panya, the uh, wisdom or the, the Panya made out of reflection. That's what the thinking mind and the academic pursuit, the analytical and the synthetically operating mind does at best. Still, the Buddha felt this was, this was not liberating. It was necessary, very useful, but it was not intrinsically liberating. And for him, the third kind of knowledge was the knowledge or the wisdom that comes from meditation practice, the bhavana mayapanya, the uh, wisdom that is derived from contemplative practice, the sort of stuff you're doing. But he didn't sneer at the first kind, first two kinds of knowledge. He just said they're actually there to support your third kind of wisdom. Yeah. There's a, a last dimension of not knowing, and this is a painful one. I expect all of you to know this kind of not knowing. It's a not knowing that uh, has to do with the lack of depth of realization or the lack of the strength and resilience to live from what we actually know. So it's basically we know things, but we can't actually live from that place. You know, we have had sparks, but these sparks don't necessarily translate into pristine wisdom that we could then live from. It's kind of, we like to move in, but we can only ever go and visit. Yeah? Um, so... I would expect most learning to take place in that painful gap between what I already know and what I have not yet realized. You know, there's a kind of a level of knowing that uh, th I am capable, but then I cannot necessarily live from that knowing. I somehow seem to be lagging behind in my behavior. I seem to be lagging behind in my emotionality. I seem to be lagging behind in my habits. You know. So that knowing always is ahead of what I'm actually capable of doing. This kind of 
ignorance is a already a lofty kind of ignorance uh, is obviously helped by uh, us being clear what makes us stronger it is clear by it is helped by determination it is helped by a commitment it is helped by um, training in the best sense of the word yeah what buddhist teachings call sikad what we would just call training probably training in the sense greeks called this askesis not because it was ascetic in the english sense of the world but it was it was something that was clear entailed exercise it entailed effort it entailed rest it entailed skill it entailed repetition in fact, that's what bhavana is about. You know, it's not about getting a glorious insight and then that was it. It's clear uh, that we need to strengthen this capacity to know, to strengthen the capacity to act in wholesome ways, to strengthen the capacity to not believe in the things that ensnare us and, and uh, tie us down. Uh, this last part... This last type of ignorance obviously makes reference to forms of cultivation in regards to the body, to our ethics, in regards to uh, training skills, how the mind can be cultivated, how it can be stilled, how it can be encouraged to become more empathetic, how it can become more resilient when the going is tough, and also how... Um, inside functions can be strengthened in many ways meditation does much of this you know? we learn to understand things we have already in some way taken cognizance of and we reconcile us, ourselves more deeply um, so i hope this idea of ignorance being a harmless type of not knowing uh, comes in a little bit into perspective um, it's very likely that you have encounters with this form of ignorance that psychologically often manifests as very specific phenomena. So uh, one set of specific phenomena. No, before I do that, I want to read you a tiny little piece, something which I deem is very elegant. Uh, here a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Speaking about ignorance, ignorance is not mere absence of knowledge, a lack of knowing particular pieces of information. Ignorance can coexist with a vast accumulation of itemized knowledge and in its own way can be tremendously shrewd and resourceful. <laughs> Here is a man who has felt the iron behind the velvet, isn't it? <laughs> As the basic root of dukkha, ignorance is a fundamental darkness shrouding the mind. Sometimes this ignorance operates in a passive manner, merely obscuring correct understanding. At other times, it takes on an active role. It becomes the great deceiver, conjuring up a mass of distorted perceptions and conceptions which the mind grasps as attributes of the world, unaware that they are its own deluded constructs. Nicely put, isn't it? So, um, 
I'd like to kind of look at briefly at a set of forms of ignorance that basically turn up as saboteurs. Uh, Yukka already spoke of them, uh, what Buddhist teaching calls the Nivarana, the five hindrances that turn up most prominently in our meditation practice. Basically, five Nivarana is your territory as long as you're not in jhana. So if you think that this is something that happens to bad Buddhists, think again, yeah? or come and talk to one of us. Uh, the question, the honest question is not, you know, do I have these? The, the honest question is, you know, when do I have which? Okay? And how do I recognize what's running at the moment? If you... Uh, it may be fair to acknowledge that three and a half of those five hindrances, so Kamachanda, sense desire, Vyapada, ill will, Tinamida, lethargy, uh, and stupor, um, udacha kukucha, agitation and restlessness, or the other way around, restlessness and agitation, and vijikicha, doubt. These uh, three and a half of those fives are when you're sitting with angelic face in formal meditation practice, three and a half of those come in the form of thoughts. Okay, so let's let's get that down to phenomenology. You, know, you will meet these in formal meditation practice primarily as forms of thoughts. Yeah. So the thought that something pleasant has just occurred to you in your mind, that you now are going to repeat this one more time, a little more slowly and with more attention to detail, this harmless little thought in Buddhist psychology is called desire. Okay, It's called the hindrance of karma chanda the intention to maximize sensuality in your, in this case, mental experience. You know, so thinking about strawberries isn't quite as good as getting strawberries, but at least it gives you a nice afterglow of a, of a memory. And you may even, to begin, salivate a little bit on that afterglow. So that is called the hindrance of sensuality. Whether that be math mathematical formula, writing poets, redecorating the meditation hall, or thinking of pizza, this is called sensuality. And this will come as a thought, as a thought that gives you a pleasant feeling, and then you decide to repeat that procedure. You know, the reward of the pleasant feeling is something that is a little more attractive than, say, your intention to stay with the breath and uh, thereupon, you will repeat, you know, the sex fantasy, the strawberries, the pizza, the makrama, the redecoration, or whatever. You know? And that is called sense desire. It is, in many ways, in ethical terms, quite harmless. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody sees it. Uh, but in terms of samadhi, it's very detrimental. Yeah. So it's not just about ethics. The hindrances are not just about morals. In fact, mostly they're not about morals. They're largely responsible for your mind not coalescing. They're largely responsible for the mind not settling. So the short-term gratification of thinking what you would want to have on your imaginary pizza is in the long term actually minimizing your chances that your mind will experience a degree of stillness that will give you a much greater reward than uh, a dried up little fantasy about pizza ingredients. 
But in the short term, that doesn't really feel that way. In the short term, you just like to follow a harmless little pursuit. Well, nobody looks and you sit here and time passes more quickly if you think about pleasant things. And didn't the Buddha say we should gladden the mind? Doesn't that say in the Anapanasati Sutta? Just, isn't that? Can't the pizza be a gladdening factor of my mind? You know? Rather than... As an alternative to Nipe, I'm sure the Buddha would choose pizza, not Nipe. So now you're having not just a little bit of sense desire, now you're beginning to have a real ditti problem. So a real micha ditti is creeping in, namely a rationalization of sense desire, and you're really down to the path of wrong understanding. With... uh, aversion or ill will, something very similar happens, it will come as a thought. You will begin to notice that uh, something in you that speaks in terms of constructive criticism actually has a sort of slightly nagging quality, you know, or if you actually not just listen to the words, but listen to the tone of the words, you realize it's a little bit snarky, it's not actually terribly constructive. So, you notice there's some aversion in there, or some vengefulness in there, or some backbiting spirit, or, you know, this. You you begin to be aware that something vitalizes itself about your aversion, contempt, indignation, you know, you you do a little bit of generally selfing, while... While sense desire is usually fairly straightforward, you know, the the reward lies in the feeling it gives you. With aversion, it's more complicated. The feeling aversion gives you is in most cases unpleasant. But there is a secret pleasantness to the uh, case by you affirm a notion of self. If you're contemptuous or aversed against something, you make a statement and say, I am not like this. You don't may spell that out in your mind, but basically by being indignant about something, you imply that you do not resemble that which you are indignant of. In other words, you corroborate your self-construct. Okay? And that self-construct is obviously an unquestionably superior kind of self-construct than to the, to the thing that you're indignant about. So you end, this is a little more complicated with aversion, although it actually feels bad if you really just go on the feeling level. Aversion generally is not a pleasant bodily experience or a pleasant mental experience, but it somehow has a secondary benefit and it it firms up your notion of superiority, it firms up your notion of purity, it firms up your notion of moral, you know, moral high ground in some way. And you can vitalize yourself. You know, so one can get vi- quite vitalized by by being averse. Sometimes when we speak, we find uh, there's a billowing of our energy when we get really indignant about something. And there's a tacit aliveness that comes into our system when we get in- indignant. You know? It defines who we are not. With lethargy, it's different. That's very honest. It doesn't actually come as a thought, usually. Uh, lethargy, stupid. Tinamida means both insensitivity, numbness. Uh, there is a, a kind of stiffness to it. 
and it means that the energy is dissipating. It's and um, that's a tricky one. While if you don't do anything about desire, generally desire goes away. It's like a cat. If you don't feed it, it won't come back. Well, it comes back twice a week to check whether it still gets nothing. And, you know, maybe once a week, and then once a month. It will still come back and check and look whether something is on offer. But if you don't feed it, usually, immediately, it will be less of a problem. You can't do this non-action thing with lethargy because lethargy and stupor win. If you don't do anything, this thing wins because it'll just move into your system and gradually bring you to a halt. Yeah. So lethargy has many reasons. One of them is honorable exhaustion You know, from your efforts of practicing satipatthana many hours a day. Basically, you're exhausted and your body having countered the habit forces of involuntary attentional pleasure-seeking, which you have heroically contravened time and again by returning your attention from objects of pleasure back to the breath, which seems less pleasurable at the moment, and that is tiresome. Yeah? So after 15 hours of this, obviously, it's expected that you start flagging a bit. Yeah? So this kind of tiredness is... Uh, the best possible form of tiredness. But many forms of uh, lethargy and lack of engagement and numbness uh, can't claim honorable exhaustion as a reason. So sometimes we are we're coping with, with forms of lethargy that are compensatory. So if we've lived very busy lives, particularly at the beginning of retreat, and then we go into this retreat schedule, we've lived on the fast track, really, and now we're suddenly holding on to our mats, and we're trying to really be mindful. And we realize, something in our mind realizes, oh, this is safe here, you know, I'm not actually being hunted. Actually, I, you know, I could relax. I can, you know, I could go from sympathetic operation to parasympathetic operation, and uh, this is safe. Let me just roll in, yeah? <laughs> I can do this in impunity. Nobody's going to eat me here. You know, the wolves are not out for me. So I just kind of go into recovery mode, decompress. So sometimes that happens, particularly to willful people, when they, when they begin to relax. And what they feel is the amount of speed and fragmentation takes place in their lives. And now here, something else is possible. And it's a healthy but not terribly productive mode of re recovering. So some of our sleepiness may have to do with just compensating for the speed and fragmentation and the throughput in, in, in our lives outside of retreat. Sometimes we, uh, lethargy and sleepiness is a real saboteur. That's uh, Christina's favorite word for the hindrances. She calls them saboteurs of intention. Uh, that's a good term. So the saboteur basically s says, look, uh, only one-third of me wanted to go to that retreat. The other two-thirds actually wanted to go and surf. Yeah? And you can drag me here, you can make me get up in the morning, you can make me sit with these strange people in the same big hall, but you can't make me meditate as soon as you let go, as soon as you want to relax, you know. I'll take over and put you in a big black bag. Yeah? So 
So these components that have parts of yourself that have been steamrolled over, that weren't consulted when the decision was made whether you're going on retreat or surfing, those pieces come back in action. As soon as you loosen your reins, these pieces kind of crop up and then they put you in the black bag. And suddenly somebody says, meditate, in-breath, be mindful, establish your posture and all, all parts of you just go... So it can be that you, you meet unacknowledged parts of your being that sabotage your meditation piece. They say, okay, I can't go surfing, but at least I can mess up his meditation. You know, he messed up my holiday, I'm going to mess up his meditation. <laughs> so there's a kind of rebellious component of our psyche that doesn't want to play along. And unless we're willing, capable and willing to bring this part of ourselves into a, some form of constructive discussion, in some negotiation with this part, this part will just sabotage our attempts. Because obviously we need to relax when we meditate, we need to let go, and at the moment the willpower that has dragged us here will not do the job anymore, and we are vulnerable to these parts. So they come up and they put us in a bag. Sometimes... Sleepiness has to do with aversion. Sleepiness is more pleasant than aversion. And uh, what we find that we're underneath our sleepiness is a lot of not wanting, resistance, being averse to conditions, to the situation, to the teaching, to the teacher. Uh, most, mostly the worst is to, to me. Yeah, I'm, aver I'm averse to myself. Uh, Western people are particularly enthusiastic about self-loathing and um, auto-aversion. Uh, Asian teachers are always shocked when they find out to what, with what enthusiasm we, um, we go at ourselves, basically, in our meditation. And... So one way of getting out of the unpleasantness of self-aversion or aversion in general is just being sleepy. Yeah. It just hurts less. It takes off the edge. Yeah. It's not pleasant, but you know, it's a lot less unpleasant than just sitting there and loathing yourself. So we often find that underneath some of the sleepiness is something that we don't want to look at, something we don't want to feel, something we resist against despite the fact that it's not even properly mentioned. Sometimes sleepiness has to do with lack of clarity what we're doing, a lack of clarity of my meditative task. My, my meditative patch isn't really cleared. I have no clarity of an object, I have no clarity of an attitude, I have no clarity of an anchor, I have no clarity of an intervention uh, technique. So I'm just kind of sitting here observing a nose and maybe two, three thoughts in the hope this cup will just pass me by, you know. I will just be, it will just stop and things will become peaceful. Uh, you know, I understand that if this is your first meditation day, but if you're kind of doing this for a while, this is just naive. Yeah? This is just, frankly, this is just naive to expect that without you doing anything, suddenly a little bit of good intention and a little bit of hope 
will do the job. You know, you don't know your mind. <laughs> your mind has a few things up its sleeve. Yeah. So uh, you will need some clarity of your toolkit. You will need some idea. You know, what am I doing now? What am I doing when I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Uh, where do I go back when I want to do again what I agreed with myself to be doing? So we need some clarity of, you know, of our, our exercise, an anchor in the body, uh, a willingness to intervene if we find ourselves doing something else, the willingness to name the, the colors of the mind, you know, what forces are at work, what intentions are at work. Unless we're willing to, to, to do some of this, sleepiness has a lot better chance. It just kind of gradually fogs over and, you know, it doesn't really hurt after the meal. You just sit here, it gets really peaceful. Yeah, it's really nice. Isn't that what it's all about? You know, peaceful. <laughs> yeah. Nothing hurts. That's, that must be the path, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it's finally happening, yeah. Not many really nasty thoughts. Yeah, that's really... I think I'm approaching neither perception nor non-perception. There's a lot of self-fooling that can take place, particularly with a full stomach, a lack of a meditation object, and the the vain hope that, you know, just following the the path of of doziness will take me to peace. So... um, a lack of clarity can be addressed, and it's a relatively easy uh, way to cope with uh, this particular type of sleepiness. Sometimes sleepiness also has to do with feeling uh, over. Part of me is over ambitious, and another part of me is aware that I don't have the resources. I don't trust this. So something in me is pushy and wants mystical experiences. You know the big a big program, preferably levitate, if not, uh, but wild, intensive states, mystical breakthroughs and uh, cities, uh, shattering insights. And another part of it says, well, I have to actually go and work next Monday, or uh, I don't trust this situation. You know, nobody's here to take care of me. These teachers I don't click with or uh, I have so many people around me that are not really supportive for him. You know, there are many conditions that may feel unsafe for some of us. You know, some of us might find it barely possible to be in the room with a with hundred other people, depending how your life looks. Uh, being in a room with hundred other people or opening up in a meditation discussion group uh, with a dozen others is, may, may be challenging to some of us. So there's part of us that wants something happening and, and, and is, is pushy, and then other part of it is afraid. And that part is nervous. So whenever the, the, the bullshit part gets too gets too much into the dangerous areas, the other part decides just to anesthetize him and says, you know, he's not doing that we're doing we're doing we're avoiding collateral damage. He's not this ambitious part we just sedate him and then, you know, and things are okay. It's not good, but it's you know, he's not gonna do any damage that way. Because right now we can't handle mystical experience. Right now we're just trying to stay sane. 
So and I don't need big stars, I don't need big CDs, I don't need to levitate, I don't need shattering insights. Right now, I just like to learn how to sit on a cushion and stay upright. I know if the other guy starts to do dangerous things, gets into dangerous corners, starts to rake up, you know, traumas, wild insights, big questions, we'll just put him to sleep. Yeah. So if you feel assailed day after day by sleepiness, you have to maybe ask a few questions. What do you gain by that sleepiness? What do you avoid by that sleepiness? What's the benefit of that sleepiness? Let's just assume that that sleepiness has some perks, okay? The mind is savvy and generally intelligent. So even though it may do things you don't agree with, it generally has its reasons. So if you want to find out why it keeps putting you to sleep, you need to find out what it is afraid of, or what it is lacking, or what it gains thereby. Yeah. Agitation and restlessness is an almost, that's half part, the restlessness, I generally tend to think of this as a bodily, as a somatic phenomenon. So it basically it's as if all parts of your body have agreed to not let you come become calm. So when you sit down, you get this kind of ants crawling over you feeling, or you're convinced that uh, right now there's you're you're about to dislodge a vertebrae in your back, or this grinding sound is the last remnant of your meniscus, or you know. So you be, you begin to you begin to have all kinds of weird sensations. And generally com compounded by some vivid imagery, uh, anxious or annoyed, uh, both work well. Uh, so you have bodily sensations combined with these, with these images, with uh, emotions or resistances against things, and then you have lots of stuff going on. So you twitch a little bit, you adjust a leg, you make sure the blood flow is secured, you you know you align a couple of vertebrae you uh, you release a fold from your trousers you loosen some muscles and there's quite a few muscles to you know if you look at the body you know there's a few muscles you could be loosening in a, in an hour so um you do one and then to your surprise you notice now the same problem seems to occur in a completely different place you know that different place was before it was perfectly all right it was you know in fact you've never actually met that place before because but now suddenly after you've just adjusted this vertebrae some other vertebrae are really playing up and you end up finding that you keep optimizing adjusting fidgeting around and while you may do justice to one little thing th the whole problem just moves yeah and there's something not settling. So that has many, many facets. It, you can be surprised by how uh, how precise your your eye may pick up on the six legs of a fly walking over your eyelid, yeah, and uh, you know, plunging its uh, whatever this instrument is called. It has at the front too its snout or whatever a fly has yeah 
And lo and behold, it is rewarded. If it long enough walks up and down your eyelid, you begin to tear, and then it gets what it wants. You know. And, but in here, you don't have many flies. You know? But maybe you have in your life. But you will have memories of those fly legs, all six of them, on your skin. And you'd be surprised how accurate your perceptions can be. You've never felt six legs so clearly. Yeah? So your memory can bring up these things. And this engages the mind and basically irritates. It stops you from engaging with stillness, from soothing, from pacifying. And you obsess with some minute aspect of your body. That's called restlessness. Sometimes we get that mentally. Often we, we get, you know, that the mind is chumpy as if after having drunk too many, too much coffee. So it kind of chumps around from one thought to the other. You know, there's an edginess to it. Often enough, you get the other flavor. Agitation is when you think about a topic, generally a topic that fills you with bad feelings, often enough forms of remorse. And you find un great unease with how you have been, what you should have done, and what you haven't done, or what you have done fills you with some unease, and you creep, you keep reiterating this. Yeah, so it's it very quickly becomes from a, a sense of unease and thinking about something that creates unease, it becomes an almost self-punishing pattern. Yeah, you, although you can't fix that situation right now because you're sitting here on a retreat and the situation is probably somewhere else so it cannot be addressed right now at least you can make yourself feel bad about it by rep repetitively running over the you know the ignominy of your uh, neglect or what you've done or what you've not done and um, you can become really filled with forms of um, deep unease uh, about uh, something you you well, basically where you haven't lived up to your own values yeah and while the sensitivity that tells you this is a useful thing is a necessary thing actually for growth uh, the fact that you're uh, obsessively reiterating this theme and this problem this issue uh, still you know minimizes your possibilities to still the mind and takes you out you know, takes you out of a, a kindness, takes you out of, a, of a, a soothing attitude. So this agitation is a, often comes, it, things catch up with us, isn't it, if we meditate. You can, f you can feel remorse how you've, you know, ill-treated a frog when you were a six-year-old boy, maybe. Or When people do retreats, it's very well known that things catch up with them. They start to feel things they have done or not done, and they feel their, the implication of those things more, more in a pronounced way. And that while this is on the whole, uh, an ethical consciousness is a useful thing to have. The obsessive reiteration of one's own flaws or shortcomings or, or, or uh, lack of sensitivity in certain situations is, is not useful. So it's a hindrance. The last one, doubt. Is an emotion, as I said in one of the groups today, it's an emotion that is unpleasant, it's a question that I feel I should not have. And because I have a question I feel I should not have, and because it's unpleasant, I try to um, usually establish probability scenarios with which I try to gain a con cognitive clarity for something that is actually an affective problem. And that never works. 
There is no thought that could withstand the onslaught of your limbic system. Yeah? That's where your emotions come from. So the, the tubes are really big from your limbic system to your neocortex. And um, the, the tubes back from the neocortical parts to back to your limbic system are not as big. Yeah? So you can only do work backwards when you're calm, when emotions are running high generally you don't have much chance to do clear thinking the higher emotional intensity is the less clear is your neocortical thinking so you basically can't fix an emotion with a thought so the idea to fix doubt with a thought does not work out it only takes a little bit of a an adjustment of your emotional animal and all your cognitive scaffolding just flies flies out of the window or tumbles in, in a big drama. So doubt comes with uh, some effects. One of the effects, it paralyzes you. So there can be many forms of doubt. In the traditional psychology, the doubt is generally the doubt of the teaching, of the teacher, of, of the Dharma. What I meet a lot is the doubt in oneself. Yeah. It's the doubt, basically. Yeah, this is all true, but I'm not. I'm just not cut out of it for it. You know, I can't do it. I have a sort of a congenital condition, not yet diagnosed, that prevents me from <laughs> from having mindfulness or from experiencing mindfulness more than a tenth of a second. You know, I must be a category day. They will find out any moment now, and I will be properly classified and get medicated properly. But right now, I'm undiagnosed, but I deep down know why. You know, this cannot be overcome. So, now this Buddhism stuff may be really useful for most people, but tragically, <laughs> for me, it isn't. You know? Doubt is generally something about ethics. Yeah? So there's many questions we don't find answers now and that don't trouble us. I don't know what I get for breakfast tomorrow morning, but it doesn't trouble me. I trust something will come up or I will find something. It's not something that I have big issues with. So a doubt is more than a question mark. It's a question mark I feel I'm not supposed to have. Yeah? And that is a difficult condition to bear. And so... I try to get out of the difficulty of uncertainty. That's, by the way, the word Ajahn Chah always used as a translation for Anicca. He, he always translated that as Maine, which means not certain. Yeah. It's, the, it's probably the condition we find most difficulty bearing. Most people find incertitude the most difficult condition to bear. We can cope with so many things, we can face so many things, we can live with so many challenges, but not knowing is a real, not knowing in the sense of uncertitude, not in the sense of ignorance, is, is a real challenge for our systems. We cannot adapt, we cannot cope, we cannot strategize, we cannot move. Um, so this is a real challenge. And obviously when we are challenged, we try to make constructions that help us. So we run through our nightmare scenarios and try to tick the probability for this nightmare scenario to occur or to not occur. Um, and obviously this takes all our uh, energy away from the possibility of settling. All of these hindrances 
sabotage our attempts to still the mind. So it's necessary to, as Chris has alluded and as Yuka has alluded, to take the personal bit out there. We have to make sure that we recognize these hindrances when they occur as universal transpersonal hindrances. Okay, They may be happening here, but they are not my personal curse. And if I know I am not just, this is not just my curse or my flaws, this is something that just happens to a mind when it tries to find comfort, either through sensuality, when it finds certainty through disowning parts of the world, saying I'm not like this and I hate that part, that means I am not that part, I'm a good part, or through not feeling and self-anesthetization, or through just itching around, or just through thinking about my own badness and practice self-flagellation, or through paralyzing myself, because that's one of the effects doubt has. It stops me from engaging, it stops me from connecting, it stops me from committing to something. So I end up cornered, paralyzed, in apparent helplessness, and obviously unable to do something that would transform my situation. It's a very, very unpleasant position. Now, the bad news about these hindrances is there isn't really a trick. You know, there are some intervention strategies. So if you're sleepy, uh, in the, a case of the first form of documented ear reflexology, the Buddha advised his best meditator, Moggallana, to massage his earlobes in a very touching little uh, intermezzo. And, you know, there's things you can do to intervene with sleepiness. Say, raise your arms, open your eyes, strengthen your in-breath, hold your breath, stand up. But in the long run, you will need to look what makes sleepiness attractive to your mind. So the intervention techniques will maybe tide you over for the sitting, but in the long run you will need to find out what's underneath that sleepiness of yours, what's underneath that pleasure-seeking of yours, what's underneath that uh, self-corroboration via uh, aversion or ill will, Uh, what's behind all this restlessness. You, You will need to do some investigation what makes these hindrances so attractive to you. But the language of hindrances is quite universal. It's easy to detect them in other people. (laughs) So be on the lookout. If you meet hindrances, see whether you can take the lens of meanness away so that this is not just my problem and stop rationalizing what's going on. A hindrance is own law... Only as long a hindrance as you basically operate from that hindrance. When you stop operating from that hindrance, when you recognize it, name it as a hindrance, it becomes a meditation object. Okay? That's the thing. You don't have to not have hindrances. You can happily practice with hindrances. As long as you know these are hindrances, then you can meditate with these. You can begin to use your toolkit. You can uh, learn a lot from hindrances. They're very, very revealing. They don't need to disappear for you to be able to meditate. But the lens of meanness and the belief that you are here cursed and preferably eternally cursed 
uh, is obviously very, very detrimental. So I encourage you to be realistic, to be sober, and to be unafraid of these. Yeah. And now, enough of, of meat for tonight. Let's breathe a minute and then we end. Good, 20 minutes of walking and then the last set, yeah. Thank you for your attention and your patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.